0: This sermon was recorded at the Midtown Congregation of Redeemer Fellowship, a church that exists to cultivate communities of transformed disciples who live for the glory of God and the good of the city. For more information, visit RedeemerKansasCity.org. Today's scripture reading is from Acts chapter 13, starting in verse 13. It can be found on page 921 of the Bibles in the pews and the seats in front of you. Again, that's... Acts chapter 13, starting in verse 13. Would join me in the reading of God's word? Now Paul and his companions set sail for Paphos and came to Persia in Pamphylia, and John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Persia and came to Antioch in Pisidia, and on the Sabbath day they went into the synagogue and sat down. He led them out of it, and for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness, and after destroying seven nations in the land of Cana, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years, and after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all of my will. Of this man's offspring, God brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, what do you, just, what do you sup- suppose that I am? I am not he. No, but behold, after me, one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says also in another psalm, you will not let your holy ones see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption but he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that, though this, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astonished and perish, For I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you.
1: Good morning. The Lord Jesus is risen. The Lord Jesus is risen. Amen. Amen. Uh, My name is Ron. I'm one of the pastors here. It's good to be with you this morning. If you're visiting us, welcome. Uh, We're glad to have you here. I'm going to pray and then we'll uh, dive into the text together. Father, we come to you in the name of the risen Lord Jesus Christ. We come to you because of his precious blood. Because in his body, he has made for us a new and a living way. We come to you through him. And because of him, God, I ask this morning as we open the word together, would you give us eyes to see? Would you give us hearts that are receptive? God, would you allow us again to behold, to fixate our eyes on the risen Lord Jesus? God, would we see him, the one who was not conquered by death? the one who is not given over to corruption, the one who has broken the power of sin, of its effects, of death and the grave forever, and who now sits as Lord and Savior over everything. God, would you let us see him this morning? And in seeing him, would you remind us that what happened that morning, 2,000 years ago, changes everything. It literally changes everything. That your power, your purposes, your redemption, your salvation has broken into this world. God, would you help us this morning? Give us the spirit of grace, we ask, for the sake of Jesus and in his name. Amen. So, the uh, famous church historian named Yaroslav Pelikan is said to have commented on his deathbed uh, a really profound statement as he drew near to death and was meditating on its meaning and the significance of what was in front of him. He's said to have made this statement. If Christ is indeed written, risen, nothing else matters. If Christ is not risen, then nothing else matters. What Pelican was able to grasp in this short turn of phrase is the reality of all human existence according to the truth of the scripture. What happened in the tomb that morning, 2,000 years ago, has cosmic and eternal and personal significance for each and every person that has ever lived. On the one hand, if Christ is risen, then it necessitates that this event and its significance shape the entirety of our lives. If true, it means that God's kingdom has broken into this world. That the good news of God's new creation work has invaded our world and changed everything. It means that everything that Jesus of Nazareth did and taught was the perfect, entire, and full truth of God. Therefore, all of our lives must be reoriented toward this. Nothing else but Christ, him crucified and risen, matters. On the other hand, if he is not risen, nothing matters. Paul the Apostle summarized it this way in 1 Corinthians 15. If Christ is not risen from the dead, then we are hopeless, helpless, and there is no meaning for life beyond the broken death-wrought existence that we all face. It means that everything in this life is ultimately meaningless. We should then turn aside from trying to like constrain ourselves in any way and go get as much as we can. We must go after that. And this is not empty rhetoric to Paul. If there is no power over sin its effects, or death, then we are, in fact, hopeless, to be pitied among all. This is an important thing for us to come to this morning as we proclaim and look at the resurrection at Easter. The message of Easter is not simply a general message of human hope. It's not sentimental, intended to like inspire your heart. It isn't a good reason to like dress up or hang out with your family. The message of Easter is nothing less than the message that God has acted to fulfill his purposes, provide a way of salvation for men, and to vindicate Jesus Christ, his person, his teaching, his life, his ministry, his death, and its significance for all times. In this, the resurrection. God declared Jesus to be the son of God. He showed him to be the savior of the world and he exalted him to be the Lord of all things. This is what we heard in the text that we come to this morning. I have one real hope for us this morning. I want us to stare at the history altering reality of the resurrection. I want us to see it again. I want us to remember that Jesus' resurrection reorients everything. I want us to look at it. I want us to behold it. I want us to be confronted with the reality that this alters all of history. And I wanna do this by looking at four things from this text quickly. I wanna look at the resurrection as Paul declares it in the second part of this sermon, in the latter half of it. I wanna look at four things. Number one, the resurrection is central to the message of the gospel. The apostolic witness or the message of the early church, the resurrection was front and center always in the proclamation of the good news that God had moved and acted and provided a way of salvation in the world. It is central to the message. The second thing I want us to see is the resurrection is historical fact. It's historical fact. It isn't sentimental. It's not something that the disciples came up or fabricated or used as a means to deal with their grief and their, uh, their disappointment in the midst of a broken world. It's not a symbolic spiritual reality that's meant to inspire you to live a better life in the middle of the hard, hardship of this world. The body of Jesus was given new life and he came out of the tomb. That's a fact. And if that is true, it reorients everything. I want us to see that the resurrection is historical fact. The third thing I want us to see is the resurrection fulfills God's promises. All of God's promises are fulfilled in the resurrection. And number four, we see from this text as well that the resurrection demands a response. It demands us to respond. It it isn't neutral. There is no neutrality when faced with this message. When faced with this message that the Savior of the world was crucified, died, was buried, and then came out of the ground, you cannot be neutral. It demands a response. So those four things we're going to look at from Acts 13. The first, the resurrection is central to the message of the New Testament, the message of the gospel, the message of the good news of God's salvation in the world. At the heart of the message of salvation is the reality of the resurrection. Look with me at verse 30 in Acts 13. As Paul's recounting, demonstrating that God has fulfilled his promises and he has shown himself to be faithful to the things that he has done throughout human history to bring about salvation and redemption. He speaks of the reality of the death of Jesus. And then in verse 30, he says, but God raised him from the dead. And then we see in verse 37, again, as he goes on, David The the man of God, after God's own heart, died, fell asleep, was put into the ground, and his body decayed. But the son of David was raised up and did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything that you could not be freed by the law of Moses." So, throughout the New Testament, we see that you cannot separate the death of Jesus from the resurrection of Jesus. You cannot separate the message of salvation, the message of the good news that is afforded in Christ's life, ministry, death. The resurrection validates and vindicates it all. And you have to have the message of the resurrection. It is the death of Jesus that pays the atonement price for salvation. The death of Jesus appeases the wrath of God that has been rightly oriented towards sinful humanity. But it is the resurrection that vindicates and validates the person and the work of Jesus. Jesus declared himself to be the son of man and the son of God throughout his ministry, but it's by the resurrection I want you to see this. It's by the resurrection that God, the Father, demonstrates that Jesus is his son. Romans 1, when Paul is beginning to talk about the reality of the gospel in verses three and four, he says, the object of the proclamation of the good news of salvation is a man. His name is Jesus Christ. He came from David according to the flesh, But he was declared to be the son of God by the resurrection, he goes on to say. What he's saying is he was always and ever the eternal son of God. That was veiled to people as he served and as he poured out his life and as he walked through the world. But the resurrection vindicates, validates, and declares him to be what he always was. It is the means through which God stamps and says, this man, believe him. It vindicates him, it validates him. I want you to think about it this way. If Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, he is nothing more than a failed prophet. Right? He proclaims a message of salvation. The inbreaking of the kingdom of God, a new age that is dawning in the world. If he dies and is succumbed to the powers of wickedness and darkness and death can hold him there, he has nothing for you. If he stayed in the grave, he's nothing but a failed prophet. He proclaimed God's redemptive purposes but was crushed by the forces of evil and the power of the world. But it's through the resurrection, the reality of Jesus's life, his ministry, his death, it is shown to us, demonstrated to us, declared to us to be the only way, the only truth, the only life. The only way that we can be sure that the death of Jesus has any power over sin any effectiveness to forgive our eternal debt, or any power to pay down the wrath of God we rightly deserve. Any certainty we would have that He has victory over death hinges on the fact that He was raised. It all hinges on it. It's the only way we have certainty there. Because of this, the resurrection is central to the message of the gospel. In the preaching of the early church, the resurrection is never separated from the message of salvation, forgiveness, atonement, or our hope in eternal life. We have to have the resurrection. We have to have it in the proclamation of God's work in the world. It is central to the message. The second thing I want us to see is the resurrection is historical fact, it's historical fact. The reality we have to see here, and this is both in Paul's message and throughout the New Testament, is that the resurrection is historical reality. Again, I want you to catch this. It's not sentiment. It's not a spiritualized message intended to talk about embodying hope in the midst of a broken world. It isn't something that the disciples created or fabricated because they didn't know how to deal with the loss of their teacher. And they were disappointed. Hey, and this is stuff that people really believe. That the disciples got around and they were really sad and distraught. And so as they gathered together, they were warmed by the reality that God had not forgotten them. And they created this idea that Jesus raised from the dead to, to somehow soothe their troubled hearts. There are people who proclaim and believe that. It's not what happened. The early Christians were explicit to utilize many devices to emphasize the historical reality that Jesus was raised from the dead. I want you to look at verse 28 here all of the historical reality that's been placed in this. Though they found him, speaking of the rulers in Jerusalem, though they found him in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. Why does Paul feel it necessary to mention Pilate here? He wants to situate it historically for you. He wants you to go and know that there are facts that are provable by anyone who is around at the time that this happened under the reign of Pilate because of the the movement of of the rulers of Jerusalem. They asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from a tree and laid him in a tomb but God raised him from the dead. And for many days, he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. There's a powerful reality in the New Testament that they highlight again and again and again about the reality of eyewitness accounts. The reality that Jesus appeared again and again and again. Why do you think it's important when Jesus shows up to the disciples, he does things like eat with them. He wants you to know that he has a body. He takes the fish in and he eats it and his body takes it in. It doesn't go through him. He's not an apparition. He's not a ghost. His literal body came out of the ground and he showed up to people, and he kept showing up to people. So many, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, it was 500 of them. You wanna know they're regularly saying? You wanna verify this? You wanna put, the, put this in the bank? Go ask one of the people who saw him. There's witness after witness after witness after witness. Now, why is this important? The message of salvation actually hinges on the historical, physical, meaning bodily death and resurrection of Jesus. It requires that he really died, which Paul goes to length to talk about here. It, it means that he, went, he, he really went to the grave. He was executed by Roman crucifixion, stripped, flogged, beaten, mocked, pierced, taken down from the cross, buried. We, found, we see in other places like John's gospel, details about being wrapped in a 100 pounds of burial spices. Right, He really came down from the cross, his actual body wrapped in linen and spices, prepared and put in a tomb. And in the same manner, he was truly raised from the dead, never to die again. Now, I want you to think about something here. I don't think we probably uh, imagine this. I think in our contemporary way of viewing the world, we would imagine that this was a more palatable, believable narrative to ancient people. And I want to tell you it wasn't. It wasn't like, Uh, this message had an easier time being accepted by ancient people. There wasn't a single worldview around at the time that this would have made sense within, right? The, the, The secular worldviews of the time, the Greeks, the Romans, they didn't have a category for this kind of resurrection. They thought it was unbelievably foolish. The Jews did not believe that the Messiah would come and die for them like a servant and then be raised. They believed that the Messiah would come, liberate them from oppression, and then usher in the time of God's resurrection for all his people. This was an unthinkable message, even to them like it might be to you although the supernatural may have been more readily believed in the ancient world, the idea of a singular, meaning one man, being resurrected was offensive to every worldview. Most ancient cultures wouldn't have believed in a resurrection, like I said, in the Jewish worldview did not expect the Messiah to die and be raised again. This is why they are regularly rooting it in Hey, you want to gauge my facts? Eyewitnesses. Go look at these people. Go ask these people. Go double check this really happened. We didn't make it up. This matters eternally and cosmically because like I said at the beginning, if Christ did not rise, then nothing matters. We're to be pitied above all. This is not simply a spiritual reality. This is not fabricated. He actually walked out of the tomb. A dead body that had been beaten, flogged, maimed, wrapped, put in the tomb, was given life. He got up, he folded his clothes, made his bed, and walked out. Never to die again. And it is history altering. It happened. Okay, the third thing the resurrection fulfills God's promises. The earliest followers of Jesus were certain that the resurrection of Jesus, although not foreseen by human wisdom or ingenuity, was not some starting over point for God in his purposes and his plan. Much of the witness that we find throughout Acts or the New Testament is an attempt to show just how Jesus fulfilled the promises that God made all throughout history to his people. Look with me at verses 33 to 37 and 39 here in this text. I'm going to jump around This he has fulfilled to us, Paul says. After he's given this whole story of the narrative of how God had moved among his people through history, he gives this whole narrative, tells about the death of Jesus and his resurrection, and he starts to say, I want you to see something. This fulfilled everything that God promised. Everything that he said he would do about salvation and providing redemption and making all things new and overcoming sin, death, its power and its effects forever, God fulfilled it by bringing to life his son again, by raising him from the dead. This he fulfilled to us by raising Jesus. How did God accomplish his promises? By raising Jesus. How did he demonstrate that he had fulfilled exactly what he said he would do? By raising Jesus. Every promise that God has made hinges on the resurrection. Hinges upon it. Jesus was raised from the dead by the power of God. And in doing so, God says, I have fulfilled my promises. In this, he fulfilled it to us by raising Jesus as it is written And he shows how the second psalm tells of how this fulfills it. Verse 34, as for the fact that he was raised from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken this way, quotes another psalm. Therefore, verse 35, he also says in another psalm, 39, by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed in the law. God fulfills it. Now, in what way? I've been trying to come up with analogies to help explain because there were very, you couldn't see this from the Old Testament by human wisdom or ingenuity, right? There were fragments and figments and whispers and promises and hints And it's not until the resurrection that you get to see this is how God has fulfilled his purposes. I've been thinking about it like if somebody gave you a puzzle, thousand-piece puzzle, and they kept back 300 pieces and didn't give you the top of the box. And you started doing the puzzle, right? You start doing the puzzle. You start putting it together. You start... uh, trying to piece some things together and you maybe force one into the other and you may get like a little hand or something or something that appears like the sun or you don't know what it is, but you're you're putting some things together and you've got a, a little bit over here and a little bit over here and a little bit over here, but you can't see it for what it is. The resurrection, at the resurrection, it's almost like the rest of the pieces get handed to you and the box top. It's like, this is what I was doing says God. This is how I was working. This is how you tie together the whispers and the fragments and the pieces and the promises. He had promised, and and what is it that he's fulfilling? God had promised from the earliest pages of the scripture that he would provide a way to be uh, for, for his people to be saved, he would come and crush the head of the serpent. He would overturn the power of sin and its effects in the world, ultimately death. And through thousands of years of redemptive history, he gave pictures, fragments, whispers, and promises to his people that he would bring full and final salvation. He would deal with sin. He would eradicate death. The resurrection in the resurrection, God fulfills his promises. This serves for us as the picture of how God fulfills his promises of salvation. It declares to us that God has fulfilled his promises and guarantees that we will fully, he will fully and finally bring them to pass. So the resurrection is central. The resurrection is historical fact. The resurrection, God fulfills his promises. And we see here that the resurrection demands a response. It demands a response. This is the outcome of all true apostolic witness, the witness of the good news of the gospel of Jesus. If Christ is risen, it evidences that the uncreated God has fulfilled his promises to provide a way of salvation for his people. It means that he has validated and vindicated his servant Jesus and has made him the Lord and the Savior over all the earth. Thus, all of our trust, all of our allegiance, all of our lives should be focused around him. Demands a whole life response. And this is what Paul ends his sermon in Acts 13 with. Look with me at verse 40 and 41. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. He says, watch out that this response is not your response. In the hearing, he says, beware of something. God has done all this work. He has fulfilled his promises. His servant, Jesus, came, died, was rose again to fulfill his promises. When you hear this, beware, watch out, keep your eyes open, lest your heart respond in this way. The message we get here is a quotation from the book of Habakkuk. Taken from Habakkuk 1, And it outlines an important reality in responding to the Lord in the midst of his work. This would have been well understood by Paul's hearers, but it requires that we set the context just a little bit. If you're not familiar with Habakkuk. The message to Habakkuk through God's uh, word was that he was at work in the midst of his people. At his time it was that he was going to bring judgment to his people. He was going to judge them in a way that if he told them how it was going to happen beforehand, they would never believe. And in response to this, they are commanded to not have a scoffing heart of disbelief to the way that God was at work. Rather, God invites Habakkuk and his hearers to the reality that they should have confident trust in God, in God alone. He moves through this message. I'm going to work in a way in your day that if I told you what it was, you wouldn't believe it. So do not scoff, do not mock, do not doubt, do not disbelieve in your heart. He moves through that and he gives Habakkuk the way by which our hearts are to respond. This is the statement that Paul picks up in the New Testament and becomes a summary statement for how we are to respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ. He says, the righteous will live by faith. The righteous will live by faith. Likewise here, Paul declares that God has acted in a way that was not expected. It'd be easy to scoff or mock the message that God had broken into the world in a humble carpenter from Nazareth who died a gruesome death of a criminal but had been raised from the dead and was now the Savior and the Lord of all creation. The response then to the message is confident trust or faith, that Christ is, in fact, the risen Lord of all the earth, It all comes down to what happened Easter weekend almost 2,000 years ago. If Christ is indeed risen, then nothing else matters. Give him your allegiance, your trust, your devotion and receive the gift of life in him by faith. Elsewise, if he is not risen, we must equally come face to face with the fact that nothing else matters. If the world is all there is, death comes for us all And sin and its effects cannot be overcome. But that's not what we believe. We believe that God has acted to vindicate his son. The one who was born of a virgin at the fullness of time. The one who lived a life of absolute and perfect obedience to the will of God the Father the one who did not consider his own equality with God as something to be laid hold of or leveraged for his own advantage, but rather took on himself the form of a servant coming in our very likeness in order that he could pour himself out even to the point of death, even the gruesome, humiliating death on a Roman crossbeam. This one paid the penalty for sin. This one bore the wrath of God that wicked and rebellious sinners deserve. This one whose blood was spilt, whose body was broken in order to purchase peace with the holy God. This one, this very one, Jesus of Nazareth laid in a tomb, buried for three days. This one, God himself raised up on the third day. And exalted him to the right hand of the majesty on high, where he has entered into the holiest of all, the temple not made with human hands, and welcomes any and all who will look to him, trust in him alone, repent of their sins, and cast themselves upon his infinite mercy. If you believe that, you're a Christian. And what I wanna do this morning is invite us to come and celebrate the reality of life made available through the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We're gonna come to the table this morning and receive of the broken body, the shed blood of Christ. The way we take communion at Redeemer is you tear a piece of the bread off, you dip it in the cup. We have wine in the stoneware and juice in the glassware. We'll have servers up in the front here in the middle in the balcony and we have a gluten-free station over here to my right to your left. Now here at Redeemer communion is open to any and all who put their faith their confident trust in Jesus alone in his death and in his resurrection who lay themselves out at his mercy Uh, If that is you, if you're a Christian, we invite you to come and take communion with us. If you're in the room and you don't put your faith in Jesus, we ask that you not come and take this meal. Um, This meal doesn't have any power in itself. It points to a reality. It points to a reality that it's through the death and resurrection of Jesus that we have life and peace with God. So we ask that you not come and take this meal with us, but we're glad you're here. We knew you'd be here. Uh, we, we, we put prayers in the seat backs in front of you. If you need language for what it might look like or sound like to talk to God this morning, um, we're really glad that you are here with us, but don't come and take this meal. Don't feel pressured to come and do some uh, activity that you do not believe in the reality or the substance of. We wanna invite you to put your faith in Jesus this morning. But for those who are coming and receiving this morning, I'm gonna pray for us. The servers will come forward and we will celebrate together uh, salvation in Christ Jesus, the crucified and risen Lord. Jesus, we love you this morning. Thank you that you fully and finally and perfectly Demonstrated the eternal, infinite, immeasurable grace and love of God by pouring your life out unto death. And thank you that this morning, even as we pray to you, we know that you are risen. You are risen, Lord Jesus. You are seated right now, at the right hand of the majesty on high, you have overcome sin, its power, its effects, and death forever. God, so we honor you. Jesus, we honor you as Lord of all. And we put our faith in you again. We trust in you. We humbly submit ourselves to you. God, would you come, spirit of the risen Lord Jesus, would you move among us? Would you nourish us? Would you strengthen us? Would you show us the power of the resurrection that we might, like Paul prayed, know you both in the power of your resurrection and the fellowship of your suffering? God, that your life would be given to us. Would you nourish us and feed us this morning by faith we ask in your great name. Amen.